today's episode brought to you by Knuckleheads because the only thing more New Jersey than the Gov sending out a tweet defining Knuckleheads is Sunday traffic on the parkway and Taylor Ham. <laughs> it is Cinco de Mayo 2020, though it doesn't really feel like it outside. And coming up on the tune-up, our concert's coming back to a drive-in near you, reinventing the drive-in. We'll tell you why in a couple of minutes. And also, another installment of The Last Dance aired on Sunday night. We're going to take you all inside Michael Jordan's trip to Atlantic City in 1993. Riveting stuff, I promise you. This is The Tune-Up. Welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur, the rotary dial recluse himself. It's Benny Horowitz. (laughs) Denny, I'm a little (laughs) afraid about what's going to happen today in relation to Cinco de Mayo and Corona. Oh, yeah. There's too many fucking douchebags in this <laughs> in this uh, world right now to, to not make some awful connections there and do some terrible things. Oh. <laughs> what are, how many states, what's the percentage of Corona board shorts that will be worn in Florida tomorrow? Oh, it's 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 mandatory to get your uh, tax rebate in Florida. Yeah. With board shorts. <laughs> you can't get your stimulus without a light <laughs> beer board short. Yeah. Uh, but I got to be honest. So, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast already. I've been watching that show Ozark. Yeah. Which, you know, is another one of those shows where no one can be trusted and everybody's kind of, you know, uh, you know, ready to be taken at any time. And then I'm like halfway through this malcolm gladwell book essentially telling me to not believe anyone ever because the we're being duped all the time and we have this default setting in our brains that wants to go to the truth which allows diabolical people to fool us all the time so i'm like i'm on edge with people man if you mix in the fact that i'm scared to touch or go near anyone then i think anyone can be anyone And then I'm now outfitted with this knowledge that maybe the more I get to know someone, the less accurate (laughs) analysis I can have on that person. That's exactly right. I'm a diabolical mastermind that's, you know, scheming out here. (laughs) So this is is terrifying. I want to be a people person, but the situation is uh, all, all arrows leading to reclusion, you know? (laughs) <laughs> hey, I mean, combine that with your phone tweets, which, by the way, people still make phone calls. In fact, do you want to have something <laughs> fucking crazy? So I do. In, like, high school and college, in the era where people were, like, texting and doing all that stuff, if you had a certain level of, I don't know, like, not, not suaveness, because I'm not saying I was suave by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but if you could pick up the phone and talk to someone and not appear like a creep for five minutes, you were in. Suave is definitely the word I would use to describe you, Denny. It's <laughs> like this, number one in the dictionary. In the dictionary, I would definitely use suave. I don't know, but it is funny. I seriously, half a dozen people have been like, dude, I, you know what? Like, I've just been like calling people and it's so cool. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, like, how quickly did this change that, that calling people is like an anomaly, like to catch up and to actually like find something out? It's, it's pretty bizarre, man. But I hope people find some value in real communication again, because texting is hard. I told you, I think I've talked about this on here. Texting has literally hurt my social life, Mm. like 100%, because 
I have sort of this dark, sardonic sense of humor. I'm very dry. I'm not very chatty on text. So half the time I read back stuff and I'm just like, oh, man, you sound crazy. You sound like an asshole. And I'm just kidding. You know, they need to see my face. They need to hear the inflection to know what's going on. So I feel like texting is, has been a problem for me. I'm, I'm down with this re, recalling revolution that's happening. But the FaceTime, the FaceTime's been remarkable because you can do a little bit more. That's <laughs> some. I'm from a time before that, Denny. <laughs> Remember, ma- men of my age grew up with magazines under their bed. You know, <laughs> you can still call up numbers. Don't get it twisted. Come on, there's a party <laughs> line. I will never know the luxury of having a party line and what kind of debauchery you could get into on there. I love the old phone stuff. Literally, my my father-in-law grew up in a house where they shared call waiting with four other families. Oh wow! So if if someone else needed. Or no, I'm sorry, not call waiting. They shared a line with four other families. So it, it was it was commonplace. If they were on the phone and you heard someone pick and click up, it was uh, respect to get off the phone within five minutes because you knew someone needed it. So it was literally four families using the same phone line. It, I love stuff like that. And now people just, um, you know, slap themselves in the face with their own latte if they can't text for 15 minutes. Okay, I- I see that personal shot. I see that personal (laughs) shot. Anyway, let's move on. Let's start the show. Let's get into this day in music history. This day in music history brought to you by time slipping into the future because Steve Miller was right. Benny, what do you got? (laughs) So on this day in 1891, it's definitely my biggest throwback. Careful, careful. In music history... (laughs) The Music Hall, later dubbed Carnegie Hall, had its grand opening in New York City with its first public performance, that first performer being <clears throat> Tchaikovsky, mm. which is not spelled the way it sounds, no. and I had to write that emphatically on my notes, but uh, didn't you say the first time you ever saw me was at Carnegie Hall? No. That wasn't you. No, that wasn't me. Someone else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never mind. I've only but, been to Carnegie Hall once, and that was to see uh, Jason Mraz Acoustic. Not bad. Oh, great. I did get to play a, a benefit concert there where we covered Who songs. Nice. And that's how Gaslight playing Bob O'Reilly started. Great closer. Because we were, we were asked to play this benefit. We were asked fairly late, too. And Brian and I were talking about what song we could do. And I'm like, did anyone pick Bob O'Reilly? He's like, probably. We were like the 20th band to sign up. No one took it yet. Wow. And we're like, all right, fuck it. It's ours. You know, I don't care. Uh, so I got to also that night meet the guys from Living Color, who's one of my favorite bands as a kid, and Bobby McFerrin, mm. who at some point, him and I awkwardly had our arms around each other. Oh, there we yeah, go. Yeah, it was very nice. The power right? of whiskey. It's, listen, Bobby McFerrin, <laughs> man, that's a big one for me. Yeah. You know, put me on a. Mount Mount Rushmore Love of it. something. I don't fucking know. <laughs> Mine is not that noble. On May 5th, 2002, two disc jockeys from Denver's KRXF, Rick Lewis and Michael Floorwax. What a name. That guy should have a Ooh. basketball podcast, Michael Floorwax. <laughs> uh, stopped a live radio interview with Detroit rocker Ted Nugent after he used derogatory racial slurs. So props uh. to those two people, and I'm surprised that Ted Nugent is still on the map. But hey, People like them, I think. Not many. Not That's many. probably about the time when people were like, oh, okay. 
he's gone from eccentric to total piece of shit. Yeah. There was there was a, a grace period there between damn Yankees and him being like the worst person ever. So I'll give I'll give them a little credit for still taking the interview. Oh, I have one more. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I just have a quick sidebar off that Ted Nugent thing. So you know, I'm in quarantine. I'm I'm, I'm watching stuff, and apparently Sammy Hagar has a TV show right now. Oh, and he hates Ted Nugent, doesn't he? But he they had, got a thing. But he had him on the show. But, but, <gasps> he but, did. But my point is not about Ted Nugent. When did Sammy Hagar become the Guy Fieri of rock and roll music? Oh, I'll tell you why. Sammy Hagar started a tequila company, made it huge. Sold it for like many, many, many millions of dollars, and then started another one that's apparently really <laughs> successful. So Sammy Hagar is balling right now, and apparently very well respected in the tequila community. Which I don't know, I, don't, I haven't signed up for that magazine, but it's a thing. Uh, so I have one more. Ninth, this one's a little near and dear to my heart because it's a place that's been mocked a number of times by punk and hardcore people I've toured with. But I got to tell you, I love the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I go any chance I can. I've been like four or five times. I think it's the coolest place. I could like walk around by myself and just be lost in like a world of information. I, I truly love the place. I think it's super cool. So on this day in 1986, it was announced that the one and only Cleveland, Ohio, had been chosen as the city where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would be built. Good city for that, too, honestly. It's like, it's on a perfect spot on the lake. It's by the stadium. It's by the aquarium. It's like easy to get to. Everything you'd want. Now, I didn't realize. So they inducted 10 people the first year. And this is a a hell of a list that went in the first year. Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, James Brown, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, and Elvis Presley. I mean, can't knock any of those. Mm -hmm. Can't knock any of those. Plus a legendary Cleveland disc jockey named Alan Freed, which he must have been really cool if he got uh, put into that list. Now, a funny anecdote from the opening of this was uh, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones inducted Chuck Berry, and one of the more memorable quotes was, uh, it's very difficult for me to talk about Chuck Berry because I lifted every lick he ever played. <laughs> so at least Keith admitted it right there in the Hall of Fame speech. I, I like that. Well, it's funny, and we'll, I, I know we'll touch on the last dance in a, a little bit, but uh, in uh, one of last night's episode, they, they talked about the first time uh, Michael met Kobe, and Kobe being like, in, in the Jordan versus Kobe debate, he's like, everything I ever learned was from Michael Jordan, so it's kind of that same thing. And we went through that a lot in the yeah. in the music tournament. It's like if you have two artists, two musicians, two athletes who are on an equal playing field, you probably got to give a leg to the guy first yeah, because they were the creators, especially in something like basketball where so much is creativity and, and finesse and and like literally, you know, even in real time, we're watching James Harden just create moves that no one's ever done before. Yeah. So if you did it first, the people owe you a lot. Exactly. All right. First topic today, Benny. And I have no idea wh- wh- where this one's going to go, but uh, Denmark is introducing initiatives to bring back live music. Well, mm-hmm. sort of. They're trying to bring concerts on the screen at drive-ins all across the country. 
Benny, as someone that grew up with the closest movie theater being a drive-in, mm. I love this. I think that it's a great <laughs> opportunity for smaller towns to get uh, to be a lot more culturally influential than they would uh, otherwise be. What's your take on the drive-in concert movement? Uh, I mean, first take is, like, good for them. It's awesome. Um, I mean, Danish people are ahead of the curve in a lot of ways, so it doesn't surprise me that they were the first to put this together. Uh, the city they did it in, Aarhus, I've actually been, hmm. and it's a beautiful town, like, literally a stunning city. The architecture, it's, it's you know, gleaming clean. Uh, everything about it, it's just a really wonderful place. And it has a museum with a uh, panoramic uh, rainbow pavilion that is in a giant circle over the museum that you can walk. And I've been up there and walked it, and I have a very fond memory of being in Aarhus in general. Um, I mean, I think the idea was great. You had They sold 500 tickets, so it was limited enough that you could keep the cars and the people like in control. The actual set was... Uh, broadcast via FM radio inside of people's cars. Uh, he was interacting with fans in their homes uh, on Zoom, on side stage. So it was like as connected of an experience as you could have made it. Luckily, I mean, they found a solo performer who obviously could like handle it by himself. They literally created a stage for this guy and threw him up there. Um, I mean, I'd say this is the future for everyone, but uh, as usual, you give a certain group of people nice things. I'm not sure they could keep it nice. Yeah. So, dude, <laughs> you know, one of these countries is very small and streamlined and smart. And the country we live in is, you know, uh, not. <laughs> so, like, I do uh, have questions on, like, what level this could be pulled off, what size. Um, I think you had, like, a controlled experiment having a a very well-known kind of subdued Danish performer and 500 Danish people as being the example is kind of the easiest way that this could have been pulled off. Um, so I think as long as you're making the concert available to normal people for free, uh, especially if it's on FM, this is a really good thing to do. I think soon enough stuff like this is going to probably be, be behind like massive paywalls. You know, if this keeps up and people are going to have to do this for a couple years, um, someone, you know, is going to find a way to make a lot of money off this. Uh, and it's not going to be all, uh, you know, altruism as, as it has been now, like yeah. giving sports or music to the people, you know, like, like soon people are going to have to start making money again. And they're going to find ways to, you know make this super exclusive or super uh, expensive to the point that normal people probably wouldn't have access to it. Um, but besides for that, I love the idea. It seems like it went off without a hitch. The police said that all the cars were out of the parking lot in 30 minutes. Mm. I did notice one thing, and I didn't see anything in the article, is that the bulk of the windows were closed in the cars. Mm. So I don't know if this was part of the social distance guideline that you could only crack the window and listen on the radio or something like that. But it wasn't like people were just like, uh, like, you know, they weren't hanging the hamburger, the hamburger tray in the side of their window. Like you would at a real, a real drive in. But, uh, I quite, I quite liked it. 
Now, the part that I'd be super interesting when you brought up the money angle, the headlines the past week, at least on the movie side of things, has been Universal breaking their agreement with a company like AMC. I wonder how that would all work with these drive-ins because a lot of these drive-ins are actually independently like family businesses. I know the one probably closest to us in Warwick, New York, is a family business. It doesn't really have an affiliation with like a, a major company so if if it's the drive-in actually booking the uh the talent and all that stuff i'd say that's a, a great thing but the moment you get like a company like live nation in there then it becomes like a whole other thing and who gets what and it, it seems like a very complicated thing but i want to kind of make this fun again i think it'd be cool for this for there to be you know before the concert starts, say you have like one headliner and you play like a movie before, you know, people come in, they get mm. their drinks, though, though we don't want to advocate drinking and driving. But, you know, if you're in the neighborhood and you stop by, you know, the bar is open, stuff like that. I want to ask you this, Benny, what would be the movie played before a Gaslight Anthem drive-in concert show? <laughs> wow, that's tough. Hmm. And feel free to tweet your own answer at the TuneUp HQ. You don't want to put a... I think this is the best way to do it, okay? So I've had this experience before. Now, one of the first times I ever did a major tour in Europe was Gaslight playing, you know, squats and small bars. And we happened to be there at the same time as the Euro Cup. Mm. Now, I hadn't until that point even known barely what the fuck the Euro Cup was let alone it being such a big deal. And since we're in smaller venues that have some wiggle room uh, and we're not under, you know, very strict schedules, quickly we were like, yeah, uh, we're going to push the show till 9.45 until the game is over. And we're like, what, for a fucking football game? Like, Hmm. like, what are you talking about? And we'd be like, who's even playing? They'd be like, oh, like France versus Italy. I'm like... It's not even the country I'm in. What are you talking about? This is crazy. And then, like like clockwork, you know, it would be like 9.30, and all of a sudden, literally 30, 40 extra people would walk through the door. Like, it was completely legitimate. Wow. Um, and the thing that happened on that tour was that we opened for a couple games. So, literally, we played, everybody stayed, the screen went up, and everybody stayed to watch the game. I mean, people love sports so much that I got to imagine, like, that might be the best way to keep people in the building is us opening for it. (laughs) So maybe my proposal would be, like, I would love to open for, like, a new release. Yeah. You know, the only thing I would ask is that they do it Warped Tour style and, like, your ticket's ripped up if you don't get in by a certain time because, you know, you'd still have to watch us. But, uh, yeah, I think that would probably be the best way. But if you had us like closing for like the new Star Wars or something, you know, you know, half those nerds are leaving. Yeah, that's true. But I do want to say too, I, I have, you know, in this in this show in particular, I had read that the stage was erected uh, for this show and everything was set up for the show. And even if you had a pre-existing drive-in movie theater, you don't have staging, you don't have sound, you don't have video production, so. Even if it was like a private drive-in movie theater hosting the event, I feel like they would only be a location. And in order to stage the event, you would still be usurped by like a corporate, uh, you know, overlord. Live Nation would just rent the drive-in, basically. 
All right, Benny, I hope you have your best takes ready because it is time for I Don't Want to Be a Gas Bag Anymore. I don't want to be a-, a gas bag! This segment brought to you by Topo Chico <laughs> because gas always punches up. Wow. That's strong, right? It's strong. I should actually send that to them. Yeah, and clever. You gotta <laughs> you gotta tweet some of these out. <laughs> Benny, what's your submission? Who's your gas bag of the day? So I didn't know this person until I found them, but I dug them up to drag them through the mud. Uh CNN columnist Julian Zelizer uh is apparently uh you know recommending that Joe Biden should just sit back, relax, and watch Donald Trump self-destruct in order to win the election. Uh, he, he thought this after the injecting bleach thing would make people actually uh, change. What the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, I gave up that hope shortly after, like, Access Hollywood tapes and mocking disabled reporters and shit. Like, this whole, like, shock and awe thing that, like, you're waiting for people to come around and have some aha moment that this is just too much not fucking happening man never gonna happen that is not the correct tactic if you want something to happen and when i read stuff like this i'm almost like who are you working for motherfucker you ain't working for me that's a fact i mean the fact that like john Kerry got eaten for fucking a windsurfing video you know he was doing something cool he didn't look great out there but Obviously, this is a different ball game. This is someone who's just like, uh, you know, resting on some old laurels that used to work and not recognizing that we're in a brave new world. Uh, so, Julian, do me a favor. Just get your head out of your ass and stop telling people to do nothing because that's some horseshit. All right, Benny. My gas bag of the week is the judge. I believe he's in Illinois who ruled in favor of U.S. soccer against the U.S. women's national team mm. in the equal pay debate. And tisk tisk tisk. This isn't. This isn't about soccer. This isn't about sports. This is about a gender equity problem that we have in in this country. And to kind of scapegoat it on. Which the way that U.S. soccer has entirely, I mean, throughout this entire process, I can't think of another organization who has a championship team, a a, a conquering hero, so to speak, that continues to put them down in the face of an organization in the men's national team Mm. that has been subpar for the better half. I mean, since since 2012, really, they've they've been awful. So. You have some of the best athletes in, in the world. Um, I kind of wish a lot of more leagues were like the NBA, where uh, the individual may be bigger than the team, and I see why fans would have a problem with it. But sure. women are the future in sports, at least. I mean, it, it, it's an untapped market. They play in, in a lot of seasons where sports are not, which is great for, for them. And you have a lot of big-time personalities that need to be covered. I get a lot of men have really been holding women back in in terms of marketing, in, in terms of the dollars being there. But I think in you know in these next couple of years, I think you're going to see a, a real rise in, in this thing because you have this U.S. Women's National Team train has been building since 1999 with very few setbacks. I mean, they've won all the all these World Cups, and they're not being paid like champions. Like, imagine if if LeBron won championship after championship and didn't get paid 
what he deserves or, or didn't get the endorsements or anything like that. Uh, the mainstream media would be throwing a fit. Hell so, to pay. Hell so, to pay. So why they don't do that for the women is beyond me. It's a shame. And anyone that wants to come at me with the, oh, like, like they don't uh, make the same amount of money. Well, then try buying a U.S. Women's National Team or a Sabrina Ionescu jersey. Because guess what? Nike's not making enough because a man somewhere is thinking that, oh, yeah, like not not enough people are going to buy this. So the supply is not there for the demand, and therefore mm-hmm. they can't make as much money. Give them the equal opportunity across the board, and let's just get past this nonsense. Couldn't agree more. And especially on a basketball level, you know, watching these Jordan docs, I'm remembering – if you want to compare the current state of the WNBA to professional men's basketball in, say, the late 90s, mm. it is a much better product on the floor right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? It really, truly is. As far as if you're just a basketball fan who likes the game and the way it's played, you can't even compare those two eras, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of the 90s, let's move up, move ahead here to the second half of the podcast. And parts five and six of the Last Dance documentary debuted on ESPN last night. And yes, we got into the Kobe Bryant, the, the Jordan stuff, which is great. But here's what I want to get into that hits literally closer to home for both of us. Michael Jordan's 1993 trip to Atlantic City after going down. Bring me to Atlantic City. 2-0 to the Knicks. Needed to get away from the city. All that hoopla goes down to Bali's in AC. And the media crucifies him after that. And you could really even argue that Jordan was never the same with the media after this incident. So, Benny, just take me through what you remember about this. And I think it's remarkable how uh, the perception of gambling has changed. And Jordan doing this in the playoffs is nowhere near what some of these guys do today. No, no, (laughs) definitely not. I'm surprised he went to Bailey's instead of Caesars, first off. I I thought he would have went to Caesars. He probably had a nice comp there or something. Who knows who owned it? But, I mean, the situation is hilarious. There's one thing that is like a microcosm that makes me think of this. So the year prior, in 92, I got taken to a uh, Knicks-Bulls playoff game at Madison Square Garden. Mm. And it was famously the game in Game 4 where Michael Jordan got stuffed by the rim. Mm. And I remember it vividly, you know, like there was like, because an entire energy in the crowd shifted. Like he went up for an open look, a clean layup, got stuffed by the rim, fucked up. Everyone's like, holy shit, Michael Jordan just blew a dunk. And literally the garden erupted on a miss, you know, and that's how people were hanging on it. And that to me is kind of a microcosm of this is like, there was no person who every move was just so uh, uh, ultra magnified at that time more than him. Like literally to the point that 30,000 people could go nuts when he misses a shot. You know, that like we were, we were hoping for it so bad. We thought that that was the break. So I don't think there's much that Michael Jordan could have done at that time before like sitting in his room, not seeing anyone that would have gotten this kind of scrutiny. Now, we're from New Jersey. We understand the trip from North Jersey to AC. People do it all the time. They yeah. do it on a whim. It's not like going out to Vegas. It's like you could be 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night. What do you want to do? Set down AC. Yeah. You know what I mean? Casino's going to be open. If you drink a light coffee, you can go all night. Like There's no time to it. doesn't really matter. And he had a night game the next day. Yeah. 
there are other things too about this that I think people forget is like, do you think like Michael Jordan drove himself there? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he couldn't have just sat in the back, taken a nap for two hours on the way down, nap for two hours on the way back. Uh, you know, and then on top of that, like, what if you were still in New York City? You just stayed there, you went out to bars, or you had a hotel party with some girls and your teammates or something like that. What's the fucking difference? Right. You know what I mean? Between cruising and dropping some of your own money. And I do think something shifted with that, though. And that's something that people as old as me maybe don't have the revisionist history on is, like, the taboo around gambling. Like, gambling up until not very long ago was lumped in with, like, sex, crime, you know, like, just it's deviant shit. So you didn't want uh, a role model gambling. Like, even that in itself was, like, taboo. And people forget that now, you know, because of fantasy and daily fantasy and the fact that, like, gambling is literally intruded day-to-day life for people who are barely even into sports. They go in these books and they bet on the fucking Emmys and shit, you know, just because they can. So I think that was part of it, too. And something did shift. I remember, I don't know exactly when Charles Barkley made this quote, but, you know, he very famously has lost millions and millions of dollars in gambling, depending on the year. And, you know, someone asked him very straight up about it. And he very succinctly said, hey, I'm like a multimillionaire. And I can spend my money however the fuck I want. And if I want to blow it on a yacht or an investment or a vacation or I want to have a great night and gamble for a while, that's my choice. So I think that's part of it. But there was also the highlight of what was going on in the situation. Like everyone forgets like how close the Knicks were and how hungry the Knicks were. Like, Mm. Like, I, I am literally birthed from a person who is a diehard Knicks fan who would never, ever in my life shut the fuck up about the 70s Knicks. All I heard about is Earl the Pearl Monroe, Dave DeBusher, Walt Clyde Frazier, Phil Jackson. You know, like, like all I could hear about was these teams because they could never take it again. And, you know, my brother and my father are diehard Knicks fans at the time, and I can tell you, these teams meant a lot to Knicks fans. They were... You know, uh, I've never seen Knicks fans gel around the team like they did at this time. And it was their time. They had two straight years to the finals. A couple years before that, you know, they very nearly went. And then, oh, I'm sorry, in the Eastern Conference Finals. And then, uh, you know, you have John Starks and Doc Rivers harassing the shit out of Michael Jordan. Made him look bad the first two games. So I think, you know, I don't know if they were just jumping on it, but it's almost like that thing... You know when people go out publicly against, like, Tom Brady? Or they go out, like, publicly against LeBron James? Like, it never works out for him. Right. You know what I mean? And by the time Game 4 rolled around, MJ was dropping 54 points and basically being like, hey, it doesn't matter where the fuck I went the night before. I'm going to win this series, and you just made me really mad. Yeah. So I also wonder, too, if, like, if the narrative never got out there, MJ was having a bad series. He was getting choked up by the Knicks guards. You know, they were really physical. They were a tough team. Like, Patrick Ewing was getting, like, 2020s and shit in that series. And, uh, and you know, maybe it doesn't turn that way unless they were so hot about what he was doing, yeah. you know? So, so where does this compare to, like, the banana boat? 
stuff like that. You know, is it oh, the same thing? Yeah, right. No, a couple things here, right? If, if this series doesn't happen in New York and say, I know that, that this would never happen, but say it's the Bulls and they're playing anywhere. I'll say, Let's like, say the Bucks. What's going on in Milwaukee no, no, at no, that no, time no. of year? <laughs> I know you want it. Say they're in like Phoenix and, and he makes that trip up to Vegas for the night because they, you know, he had the day, the night game. Nobody hears about it because it's Phoenix, but because it's New York and because the way the media culture is here looking for every little thing, I guarantee a lot of these reporters who probably had their own gambling things going on to begin with had <laughs> had had a guy at the casinos down there. That's how how they get that tip, you know. Word travels fast for such a small state, word travels really fast. Then the other thing watching this last night that really kind of got to me. Now, you know, I've wanted to be in the media and all stuff my entire life. But the way these scrums are, and I've been in my fair share of, of, of scrums. They're fine. You know, there's there's small media rooms and there's big media rooms. Uh, the garden definitely as big of a media room as, as you can have. Intimidating place to ask a question, especially with a guy like Michael. So you kind of develop that edge. And every every reporter that is trying to get their story, get all, all that stuff out, because if you go back without the sound that you need oh gosh there's hell to pay i don't even want to want to get into that but new york is such a a weird vacuum of opinion but like opinion on like a deadline and now in the newspaper industry in in radio in radio it's about having it live in the newspapers especially back then it was about making your deadline so all of that stuff creates this vortex of pressure that unfortunately ends up winding up on the player itself and i think that's why new york is such a hard place to play and so if this story comes out in any other market where maybe it's a lot more relaxed and everyone's not trying to always beat each other to the punch i don't think this becomes the thing and then the other interesting thing to this is the the endorsement deals that mike had it's be like Mike. It's the shoes. It's it's the Gatorades. It's your McDonald's. It's it's the Nike. All that stuff. So, I think we're so quick to want to build up our heroes as just that, like almost unworldly, the perfect person, and we like to see him crumble. I mean, they've tried to do that with Steph Curry, and what Steph Curry done is kind of went away from the limelight a little bit. They've been doing this to LeBron. Kevin Durant, I actually think, is the most genius person to go about this because he's just like, you know, I'm just going to be out here on Front Street with everybody, and yeah. it probably made his life a lot less stressful. So, yeah, I think so. It's, it's, it's a creation that I don't think your Larry Birds and your Magics had to deal with. Yes, they probably had to deal with scrutiny, especially Larry Bird playing in Boston, but for this narrative with Michael, I think it really kind of built on the blocks of how sports were covered before but it kind of amped up the pressure and has really defined everything since and how much do you think like you know a lot of people talking today that that this story in particular in this instance in particular was the thing that put him over the top to have him retire for two years and come back that that the scrutiny and the loneliness of being michael jordan and having that unique scrutiny led to that that seems a little outlandish to me do you think that's true no i really don't because think about it this way benny let's take a day that you've had a show all right like there's not from the moment you leave your hotel it's not like there's people going crazy right outside the hotel and you kind of need to get rushed over to get on the bus so that you don't physically get hurt and you're having that happen to you 
five, six times a day. You have people invading your privacy. Honestly, as I was watching this last night, I kept thinking, man, I would never want that level of fame because you lose a part of yourself. You lose something that's so sacred. And even the most extroverted person cherishes their privacy. And that's what you lose when you're a global superstar. So we haven't learned in, in, in terms of narrative. And yeah, of course, it pushed him away. And maybe basketball brought him back, his desire to be a competitor and stuff like that. But I think that Michael left the game because of everything that I just mentioned having to do with the pressure and just wanting to really be a normal guy for a couple of weeks. I mean, or a couple of years. It's the same reason why European soccer stars come to play in America, in, in MLS. They just want to be able to walk down the street and have a, have a cup of coffee. Yeah, no, it's true. And I, I've even seen it firsthand, man. Like, you know, and I've felt bad for it. It's one of the things I like about being a drummer. Seriously, is like, you know, there are aspects of it I hate. And it's the fact that, you know, maybe you don't get as much credit or you don't get as much, you know, whatever kind of the things you have to start telling your ego when you're doing it. But also, like, I very rarely felt like, man, I can't go out because it's just going to be too much. Yeah. You know, or something like that. I feel it sometimes at home when I know, like, like, it's kept me from going to, like, White Eagle Hall a few times in the last, like, six months. Because I'm like, I want to go see this band, but I want to, like, sneak in the door and see this band and leave. I don't feel like talking to anybody, mm. you know? <laughs> and that's me. That's This yeah. is like a, a, a you know, ex-celebrity. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, like, so <laughs> far down this list. And I've seen even someone like Brian, you know, or, or some of my other friends who are singers and more up front. You know, we'll have a day off in a town, but if it's in like a certain part of town and you see a lot of people hanging around and stuff, honestly, like you can't just go get a drink yeah. and you can't just like hang out with your friends and you can't catch up and you can't have those conversations because as nice as people will be and as respectful as they'll be, which often they are, um, it's a constant disruption. It is. And uh, when I've seen it on a level of like a fairly well-known rock singer and michael jordan yeah who every single person in the world knows and wants a piece of yeah i mean i i can't even imagine that and and also i think it came up a couple times in regards to michael jordan's uh you know republicans buy shoes line i think as a black athlete at that time in his singular position he had an even stranger line to walk because he was actively selling himself to white America intentionally. You know what I mean? He's not a dumb fucking person. And I think he knew, even if it wasn't the most tasteful thing at the time or at times, he knew he had to walk a line to get what he wanted to get the same way Barack Obama had to walk a line to be president. You know what I mean? Right. You think everything he thought he was saying, <laughs> fuck no, you no, know? No. So like there is a, a a unique part of it like that too, where where the scrutiny is even twice as bad for him because anything that he would have done, you have to put that uh, hat on top of as well. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune up podcast with two p's at gmail dot com. You can tweet at us, DM us at the tune up HQ on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us. He is Benny Horowitz one. Number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I'm at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? Yo, rest in peace, Don Shula. Mm. Your teams were 
fun as fuck to watch in the 80s and 90s. Besides for that, everyone, keep your distance. Don't fucking cough on anyone. And uh, everyone love everybody. And if you're in the east or west coast, you know, just maybe maybe stay away from the beach unless it's responsible. But <laughs> what do I know? Stay safe, you knuckleheads. This has been The Tuna. <laughs>